Novel Open Audio, the podcast that connects the Novel user community with what's going on inside and around the Novel universe. Welcome to Novel Open Audio. I'm your host, Aaron Quill. And today in the studio, I've got a couple special guests. First, we've got Ron Terry back on the show. Ron? Good morning. Oh, good morning. Good to be back. Ron, what do you do for us again? So I'm an advanced technical trainer specializing in virtualization and high availability as well as just Linux in general. Okay. And we also have Mike Friesenegger in the room. Mike, good morning. Good morning. Mike, what do you do for us? So I'm a pre-sales engineer, um, part of the data center Linux team, and I've been spending a lot of my time focusing on Linux on System Z. And that actually brings up what we're going to talk about today. We are very lucky to have somebody from IBM Richard Lewis, who specializes on System Z. Actually, Richard, what do you do? Well, I work for IBM's Advanced Technical Skills Organization. That's sort of a new name. Most everybody knew us previously as the Washington System Center. And I've been working with ZVM for 25 years, and I've been working with Linux for more than 10, and Linux on the mainframe or System Z for 10 years now. That's actually one of the reasons why we asked you to come in. We are at the 10-year anniversary of Linux running on the mainframe. Hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> so we actually asked you to come in and sit down and really just geek out with us today. Because Great. we're hearing more and more about customers starting to move some of these workloads up onto the mainframe or starting to move classic workloads on the mainframe over to the System Z side, over onto IFLs. And what we want to do is take some time to actually sit down and talk about the architecture, talk about what it means to run Linux on the mainframe, and ask a lot of the questions that people would have, people that are comfortable with Linux, but have no idea what it means to run on the mainframe. Great. I know we're going to run into some issues with vocabulary, because I know that we on the classic Linux x86 PowerPC side are going to use different terms than you do on the mainframe. Can you just run us through some of the common terminology that you're going to be using in this interview about different things on the mainframe? Sure. But before I do that, actually, one of the most important things to realize is that Linux on the mainframe is the same as Linux everywhere else. Yeah. So that's one of the common misconceptions, that because the mainframe has a different system architecture, that somehow Linux is some convoluted strange thing. When, in fact, it's the same Linux you run every place else. We're just another architecture port. And just to be painfully clear on that, what that means is the Linux is the same, everything's the same, the differences are the applications. It's just like going in between different platforms as far as if I want to take an application from x86 to, say, PowerPC, right? I still need to recompile my application to be able to work with that new processor or that new architecture. But the underlying Linux is exactly the same. Files are in the same place. It behaves the same way. I use the same commands and everything. Yeah, and to even bring in another point, with Zen virtualization on our side, we have a different kernel to run on a Zen virtualization platform for pair virtualization than we do if it's a bare metal platform. So again, we're already used to this concept, even on an x86 architecture. So it's really not that different. It's the same Linux. I think that's one of the most important fundamental things to make people aware of. One of the litmus tests for that that I usually tell customers that I'm talking to that are familiar, actually, with the mainframe, and that is the traditional IBM operating systems that run on the mainframe use the encoding scheme EBCDIC. Yeah. So the character encoding is very different from the distributed world, which is ASCII. Linux, of course, lives in an ASCII world, so 
when Linux is ported to the mainframe, I ask people, what encoding scheme do you think Linux is using? And the answer is ASCII. <laughs> it's ASCII everywhere else. It's ASCII on the mainframe. It's the same Linux. There's no reason why it has to be EBCDIC just because it's running on a mainframe. IBM chose that encoding scheme years ago, but Linux is Linux. So that's point number one. In terms of definitions, we usually use the term processor or CPU. That would translate to core in the distributed world. So when we talk about a processor, that's what we're speaking about. Probably one of the most confusing terms is the mainframe use of the term storage. When we say storage, we're really talking about memory. <laughs> oh. There are two classifications, I should say, of memory on the mainframe. It's physically the same hardware these days, although five or seven years ago, it was actually physically different memory. But we have central storage or central memory where the operating system lives and everything executing lives there. Okay, well, when you're saying memory here, you're actually talking about what we refer to as disk storage. No, this would be RAM. Oh, this is RAM still. Okay, RAM. just making sure. Right. So that's why this area is one of the most confusing. <laughs> and this term storage <laughs> gets yeah. everybody. So when I say storage, I'm speaking of typically what you would uh, would be central storage because of these two classifications, and that would be RAM. It's also possible on the mainframe to define another classification of memory called expanded storage or extended storage. And it is an area that would be analogous to some sort of high-speed RAM device. Like a so RAM disk or a RAM or disk, memory something file system like or something. That. Okay. Right. So you would physically copy files or something that you wanted to be able to access much faster? You take them off a physical disk, whatever you're going to wind up calling that, up into this storage? Well, we don't usually move things from disk there. What it's used for is a high-speed paging device. So that instead of Linux swapping to Swap. disk, for example... Oh. God, that's just so we bizarre. Swapping to memory. Swap to RAM, right. sure. <laughs> I guess. Why not? <laughs> and so ZVM, of course, being a virtual storage operating system where memory is typically overcommitted, has to be able to page very, very quickly. And so its primary location, its preferred place to page to is expanded memory. And that's why in a ZVM environment, you typically always designate some amount of central and then some as expanded. So you have that high-speed paging area. Okay, so i got to jump off terminology just for a second, just because okay. I want to hear the number. So like <laughs> a typical box that you play with, how much storage? Well, we have a Z10BC here at Novell BrainShare sitting out in the IT Central. It is a business class Z10, so that's the entry. And it's fully loaded, so it comes with 256 gigabytes of memory. Okay. Now, that memory is not fully usable by a customer 248 gigabytes is, there's eight gigabytes set aside for the hardware itself to use as a hardware configuration area. So we have 248 gig to play with, and we partition that up among our LPARs in a way that makes sense. Okay, and we're going to talk about LPARs in a minute, but sure. let, let's keep going. So we talked about storage. What other terms are going to throw us off? So the next biggest area outside of this memory storage is disks. In the mainframe world, we speak of disks as DASD devices, but that's an acronym. It refers to direct access storage devices. Which we hear a little bit in the distributed world now as well, direct attached storage. Yeah. And even DASD a bit, but still being just common, I think, not as, not as much. But now what you're going to find out is that, that people sometimes don't refer to it as DASD. They refer to it as 
the IBM part number, 3390, or what is that? Yeah, I mean, we have had disk storage devices for 40-some years that attach to a mainframe, and they each have model numbers associated with them that represent the capabilities of that storage subsystem, the platter size and everything else. So this goes back to when a disk drive was a huge 12, 18-inch platter in a stack. That you would physically put into them. You would physically put it in, right? And you could physically see the cylinders as the arms moved in among the platters and you could have exciting head crashes and things like that. So those models have continued on. Now that we're into storage arrays where the notion of a mainframe DASD is really emulated by the storage array, the last physical disk model number is what's typically used. So you'll hear 3390. And that really refers to a disk generation, and it, also, it refers to a geometry and a capacity. So 3390s can come in a Model 3, which gives you 3,339 cylinders, roughly in the Linux world, 2.3 gigabytes, yeah. somewhere in there. Mike. So yeah. a really <laughs> big device, you know? Well, I mean, considering probably gig. the last time that that was produced, 2.3 was probably a big device at the time, right? It was a right? big device, so, yeah. absolutely. And then there's the Model 9, which is roughly three times that. So... Six 10, gigs, 000. still less than my yeah, iPhone. Yeah, six gigs. <laughs> and it goes up to Model 27, Model 32, Model 54. So the highest of the 3390 family right now is roughly a 54, 55 gig device somewhere in there. You say that you emulate those off of the storage array. So when you define the emulation, you define a certain level that it's emulating? Correct. So, for example, out on the IT Central, With our Z10BC, we have a DS8300 storage subsystem. So that's the disks that that Z10 is using. The disk array. Right. And that is an array of SCSI disks. So they're 300 gig drives, 15K RPM, and they're in an array. You can set up different rate levels and so forth. You can tell that storage system to have those drives allocated as regular open systems disks. In that case, they're SCSI drives that an operating system sees network attached, SAN attached. attached. Or you can tell that subsystem to make them mainframe disks, which means they will now emulate the characteristics of a 3390 DASD. You're going to hear another term associated with DASD, and that is ECKD. That stands for Extended Count Key Data. And that's a very important term because that tells you the organization of data on the disk. Very different from what you would be used to in the open systems world where you have 512 byte sectors and the disk is nicely evenly divided up into those sectors. Life is good. You just index in as far as you want to go to some relative offset and read a sector. There's a question because in the x86 world, we typically will partition the drives into separate partitions, then format those with file systems, then mount those in. Do you see the same thing in the mainframe world or do you just treat the disk as a whole? Exactly as you described earlier, we partition them. They're low-level formatted and they're partitioned. So from a Linux point of view, a DASD is really no different from any other disk that is being worked with. And you put a file system on it, 
uh, conceptually, it's exactly the same. When you get down into the device driver level, then it's very, very different because the DASD device driver that is part of Linux running on the mainframe, that device driver is doing I.O. expecting a physical disk layout that is consistent with extended count key data. Okay. So the organization of a track in an ECKD device, you physically have a count field, which is a portion of data on the disk, followed by a key field, which is another portion of data is key on the a disk. Checksum? No, key can be anything you want it to be. And then the data portion is the payload, and the data portion can be either fixed in size or variable. So if it's variable, then the count field becomes very important because the count field tells you how big the data field is, oh, how much to read. It. Okay, so. The key field is there so that you could basically have the hardware implement an indexed file system for you. So that so that it's, wasn't it's almost in. like a LBA, RLL, if talking about these old underlying physical level formats on steroids. Right. Got it. So that, it that's was, really the level that we're talking about is down there at the disk firmware level that we never touch anymore and we haven't touched for years in, I guess, the x86 distributed world. No. And it was really so that file systems could be constructed in the mainframe world that were very, very efficient and very, very fast. So if you were writing I.O. for a file system that used the ECKD format, you could ask the system for a record associated with whatever your key string might be, and the hardware itself goes out and searches the key fields until it finds the right key field, and then it returns the data associated with the key. So that brings up another question then. So you're talking about writing file systems specifically for that low-level formatting. How does that equate then to the traditional Linux file systems like, say, ext3, xfs, some of these? So Linux lives in the ECKD format, but doesn't really use it. That's the whole issue. So when you use the DASD driver with ECKD disks, the low-level formatting that you do is to put fixed 4096-byte records of zeros on every track and cylinder of the devices that you're going to use for a file system. And so all the Linux DASD driver is doing is reading 4K. It's not using the count field. It's not using the key field for anything. And so it ends up being very similar to the partitioning, you know, 512-byte partitions on a regular disk. EXT2 file systems just live in 4K blocks. Which, which interesting there. enough, we're now changing to the 4K blocks in, in the distributed world as the hard drive manufacturers are changing that. And we're seeing the changes in the OS to underlying, I guess, file system drivers to make sure they line up all of their storage on those as opposed to a 512-byte break. So it's very similar to that, it seems like. Absolutely. So now one thing, I don't know if you're going to get to this, but when you're working with Linux, you're used to the fdisk command right. for storage. Well, when we're talking about DASD... FDisk doesn't work anymore. FDisk doesn't work for that. What is no. the command? The commands, there's two of them. Yep. The first command is called DASD format. <laughs> so at least it has that string DASD so you know what you're doing. And DASD format is the low-level format preparing an ECKD disk for use by Linux. And so all DASD format's going to do is write 4K records across every track and cylinder. And then with FDisk, you typically create partitions, right? Yep. And so in the System Z world, there is a tool called FDASD, 
and it does the same thing. It allows you to create up to three partitions on an ECKD disk. And so it uses a different style partition table then, it sounds, as opposed to the traditional Intel style where you have four primary partitions, an extended partition, subdivided into logical partitions. Does it use that same type of partition table structure or is it a different type of structure? It's not exactly the same. It's very similar in concept. It would be basically um, just having primary partitions as opposed okay. to extended. Okay, and maybe this is the next question too, and I don't know, Mike might be able to clarify this a little bit, but I know in Linux with the YAS tool, the partitioning module, we actually don't use FDisk, we use PartProbe to do that. And do we know, does PartProbe handle this, or can we use the YAS partitioning module in this? You can, and actually. It, that's a huge benefit for mainframe system programmers, the people that are actually... System programmers, that well, would be the... Sysadmins? The sysadmins, yes, okay, there you go. Sure. System Another term that we're making sure that we're getting clear. Exactly. That's right. They can go ahead and begin to utilize YAST and the partitioning tool in YAST versus having to know the FDASD command. And the One set of terms that I'd like you to cover is we refer to people differently in the x86 and the traditional server side. You know, we have admins. We are used to, you know, either a supervisor account or a root account. You refer to a fair amount of those things a little bit differently. Can you just run through the typical people that work on systems and what roles and what user accounts they'd be using? Well, okay. The answer to that isn't as simple as it would seem because a lot of customer businesses structure themselves differently. But I would say on the whole, you have the system programmer who is responsible for maintaining the infrastructure. So maintaining the hardware definitions that are associated with the mainframe and doing all the operating system level work, installing software. So if somebody wants WebSphere or something like that, the system programmer would install that and configure it. Then you have the application folks who are responsible for writing the applications and deploying them. They, of necessity, have to deal with the system programmers because as they need more resource, it's the system programmer that provides the additional resource. And then you typically have security personnel who are auditing and maintaining the security structure of the system. So the system programmer is going to use privileged user IDs, which if you looked at the analog in Linux, it'd be logging onto root all the time. Yeah, or sudo or... Right. Yeah. So, so let me just, for clarification, when you say the system programmer, you're really describing what we would call the system administrator then, or sysadmin, SA, whatever. But as far as the application programmers and, and security guys, I mean, we still have those same type of classifications, but as far as the terminology... Differences. I don't, I don't probably think there very really similar is. A, there. Yeah, I haven't really encountered a difference in terminology there. So it's really just the sysadmin versus the sysprogrammer. That's essentially the role that we're talking about. Right. There. Okay, good. Because, you know, in the mainframe world, we have DBAs, database yeah, administrators. Yeah. Yeah. Same in the distributed world. So it's really so that those, role of the system programmer. I think that's where the real difference lies, yeah. Okay. So, so you, you mentioned privileged users, so the idea that, you know, I'm not always logged in as supervisor or always logged in as root, only when I go to do something am I then prompted for those elevated rights. Is there an account similar to root? Well, it depends which mainframe operating system we're talking about, but let's talk about ZVM since that's the one that would be yeah. associated yeah. with Linux. And the difference in the ZVM world from every other operating system is nothing ever happens on ZVM outside the context of a virtual machine. So in a VM environment, I can't even enter a command without first creating a virtual machine and entering the command in the context of the virtual machine. 
So, so that's is, very different from most other operating systems. Yeah, well, the interesting enough is you describe <laughs> that. That actually sounds very familiar to what we have when we talk Zen virtualization because ZVM, it sounds like as you're talking, is, fits at the same layer that the Zen hypervisor would fit in our model where you never go to the Zen hypervisor and execute commands. You always interact with the Zen hypervisor through an operating system running in a virtual machine. And so it sounds like you're describing a similar thing where you instantiate a virtual machine and load something in there that allows you then to communicate through a, a communication path of some sort down to the ZVM or what might be termed a hypervisor layer? Correct. When you talk about ZVM, actually, you're speaking of multiple operating systems that are part of the package. Okay. There is an operating system called the control program, and that's what you would think of as your hypervisor. So okay. the control program runs on real hardware, manages all the real hardware resources, and is responsible for instantiating virtual machines. And it gets its picture of what a virtual machine should look like from a user-maintained file or a system programmer-maintained file called the directory. Now, here's another terminology thing. When you IPL a ZVM system, <laughs> initial program load as opposed to boot. Yeah, boot or bootstrap, yeah. yeah. But when you get right down to it from a hardware point of view, it's pretty much the same thing. Because yeah. what happens in boot? Well, the BIOS knows to go to a particular location on disk and read some code, right? Well, in initial program load, the Z architecture defines the fact that the IPL microcode is going to go to a disk device look at a particular location, read some code in, turn control over to that, and it's the responsibility of that code to read the rest of the operating system in. So when you IPL the control program on real hardware, the control program, as it's going through its process of initialization, actually creates and logs you onto a virtual machine. And that virtual machine is named operator because that becomes the system operator. So you can see that very early in the process, a virtual machine has to be there for you to interact with the system at all. Again, which just sounds just like our Zen yeah, virtualized it, it, environment. It we sounds have like to Dom Zero. Domain Zero. From within that, that's how you interact with everything. This is really cool to see how similar we are in most cases. And as I've taught a lot of virtualization courses, very many VMware guys in there particularly, quite a big different architecture difference between, say, the VMware and Zen. And that's one thing I have called out is, from my limited knowledge, that Zen is much more similar to, in many cases, the mainframe virtualization architecture than it is necessarily the x86. It and is. And you're describing these exact same things. Yep, it is. So let me get back to your question now that I laid the ground. I'm waiting for it. So there is a particular virtual machine that is defined as part of the installation known as MAINT. Okay. So that is the analogous root on a VM system. Maint has been designated as the virtual machine that a system programmer would log on to to maintain the operating system and maintain the entire environment. And it has all of the control program command classes associated with it. So it basically can do anything on the system. Perfect. And what would the default password for that be? <laughs> the default password is maint. Is it Maybe. really? Exactly. It is. Oh, that is fantastic. So, I was kidding, but I'm glad you told me. <laughs> when you install a VM system, all of the virtual machines that get created as part of the installation to run the system, all of the passwords are equal to the user ID. Cool. Wow. Tremendous security there. So anybody who's ever installed VM once knows all those passwords. And so anybody who ever installs VM Better change the passwords is the first thing they do. I've really been doing this stuff forever. I used to do SNA gateways and everything. I can't tell you how many times I walked into people's glass house and there'd be a 3745 sitting right there and a terminal 
And you know, I can never get the system programmers never working when I am trying to get this thing up and running. And you look up on the corner, and in pencil on the corner, the password. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. About 15 years ago that I first logged into a 3745 and configured my own SNA gateway. Which wow, was, pretty uh, good. <laughs> That's heavy duty. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was fun. All right, Richard, I'm dying to know here. You're the systems programmer. And we're all interested in getting a VM guest. And we come to you with a request. And it's a brand new system, Z10. You've just got ZVM installed. You're logged in as main. What do you do next to allow us to install Linux? Okay, good question. Where I start is with the user directory because that's where virtual machines are defined. So I have two choices. I could perhaps have purchased a priced feature called Dermaint, the directory maintenance facility. And that is a product, it's actually a, a portion of VM, but it has a separate price these days. That's sole purpose is to automate management of that user directory. There's some good reasons for doing that since the user directory is the heart of your VM system. If it gets messed up, well, your VM system is gone. So you don't want to introduce mistakes into the directory. And so it simply takes care of all the syntax and making sure that everything that is added to the directory is correct before that directory goes online for use. The alternative is that I take and edit the file that is the user directory. It is simply a flat text file. And so I can use any editor and I can go into the directory to any point in the file where I want to be at doesn't have to be sorted, and I can just start inserting lines. And the first line that I'm going to insert is a user statement, because that's the beginning of a virtual machine definition. So the user statement defines the logon username for the virtual machine. It can be up to eight characters in length. And I also then define the amount of memory, storage in mainframe terms, that this virtual machine will have. So let's be generous. I'll give it one gigabyte of memory. Oh, that's generous. <laughs> I could give it lots more, but a gig is reasonable just to start off with. And then I also define the command privileges for this particular virtual machine. And the most common case would be G for general user. And that authorizes you then to execute control program commands that allow you to look at and modify your virtual machine environment, but do nothing that affects any real resources on the system. So you can't really see how many real disk devices does VM actually have to work with? How much real memory does it have to work with? What are other virtual machines doing? You can't see any of that. But you can see all the resources of your own virtual machine how much memory do I have? What devices do I have? How many CPUs do I have? And so forth. So I got two quick questions on that. So when you're talking about a user directory, really that's, in my mind, the object that represents this VM that contains all the configuration information about it, right? That's what it is, right? It sounds more like just for a VM, for all VMs defined on the system. Is there yeah. multiple user directories or one for each VM? There's one per system. When I first heard of user directory, you can kind of think of it from Zen terminology as the Etsy Zen VM directory. Oh, that helps me a lot. Yeah, so we define each VM in Zen within a separate file within the VM directory. Whereas in ZVM terms, it's all within the user direct. Right. Okay, that makes sense. And now another concept you mentioned is where you're defining the privilege level. It sounds like you're saying, you said general privilege level means it can basically modify only the environment that it's presented with but can't see anything else. 
That kind of sounds a lot like, again, the Zen world where you have a privileged VM, which is DOM zero, domain zero, and then all the rest of the VMs that are created are unprivileged. Domain zero, the privilege means that it can see below its own environment. It can affect and it can understand things about other VMs where in a DOM U, an unprivileged domain, sounds more like this general privilege where they can only basically see what it's given and manipulate with. Absolutely correct. The VM control program defines privilege levels A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So those are all these command classes. And all of the commands that the control program supports are grouped into one or more of those letters. So Class G, general user, only includes the commands that allow you to do something to your virtual machine but affect nobody else. As a system programmer of a VM system, though, if you don't like the distribution that IBM has made to those classes, you can restructure it yourself. So I can determine that all of my Linuxes really need access to a command that's not in the Class G grouping but really isn't a dangerous command for everything else. And I can then move that command out of whatever class it's in into class G if I want. Or I can create my own class H for Linux, and I can just put that command in there. And then I can give my Linux as both G and H as a command privilege. And it allows them to do general things, plus this one other command that really should be privileged. And if I gave my virtual machine the whole other group, that'd be too much, but I can just pull this one out. So a lot of flexibility in terms of what virtual machines can see and do. Real machines are extensible, right? The yeah. real machine out there, I can hot plug in a card yeah. that maybe gives me access to more disks. So I can dynamically change the real machine. Since a ZVM virtual machine has to faithfully portray the architecture of the real system, I can expand a virtual machine dynamically as well. Cool. But if I'm just a general user, I can't do a whole lot of expansion. I'm really limited to the boundaries of what the system programmer has set up in the user directory. And that's where I was actually going, is you do have the ability to dynamically allocate additional RAM to um, a VM? Yes, but on that same user statement, I guess I sort of glossed over, when I define memory, I define a minimum and a maximum. So I can oh. give you a range of memory. When you first log on, you get the minimum. If you decide that, well, my virtual machine really needs to be bigger, it needs more RAM, I can dynamically define additional memory for use, but only up to the maximum that has been set. So that's just like we do with yeah, Zen, Zen, so that's yep. very nice. So I could give you 512 meg to start and a gig maximum, and you could be anywhere from zero to one gig. Yep. You can change it. So now you've defined the RAM for us. You've defined some sort of, I don't want to use the term storage, disk that we right. have access so to. So I would define a CPU or more. And that's where I was going. These are virtual CPUs, obviously, right? Right. So how does it happen if I give it three CPUs as opposed to one? Do I get three times the amount of processing power? Is it a weighted thing for other virtual machines that are running on the system simultaneous, or how does it differentiate? Sort of all of what you said. <laughs> so there's no direct tie between virtual CPUs and the real CPUs that the VM control program is managing. The sole purpose in life of the control program is to dispatch virtual CPUs on real CPUs. All right, so if my VM system has one physical CPU in it, I can still define virtual machines with more than one virtual CPU up to the architecture limit of 64. 
Now, if you think about that for a moment, though, if I have a virtual machine that has, well, let's use your example, three virtual CPUs, Linux running in that virtual machine will see three CPUs. It will dispatch tasks accordingly, thinking it's doing some amount of parallel processing, yeah. when in fact not more than one of those can ever really execute at a time. So the control program will time slice those virtual CPUs on the real CPU, and it will try to give the illusion that they're all functioning at once, but in fact, only one is ever executing at a time. Now, if I had three real CPUs for VM to work with, and my virtual machine has three virtual CPUs, now I can actually dispatch three at once. And so sure. Linux running in the virtual machine supposes it's doing things in parallel when in fact it is doing things in parallel. The VM system probably will have more than one virtual machine, right? Yeah. So let's say I have 10 virtual machines, each with three CPUs. I have three real CPUs. Now I have 30 virtual trying to run on three real. Again, the control program goes through and dispatches those virtual CPUs so that they each get what they desire or an equal share. It is possible to tell the control program which virtual machine is more important than another and which should be able to consume more CPU than another. Um, it's done through a CP command called set share. So the share value for a virtual machine identifies how much capacity primarily CPU, but it extends to memory and paging devices as well. But it really is perceived as CPU, how much CPU that virtual machine is allowed to consume. If there's no constraint, then the control program allows any virtual machine to consume as much as it wants. But when a constraint exists, then the share values come into play. And if I've said that one virtual machine should really get 70% of what's available and the others should get 30%, well, that's what will happen. And that might actually work better because when we have multiple processors running in an OS, there's obviously the overhead of sitting there trying to figure out how we're going to break tasks up to send it to multiple processors. Right. So it might even be better just to tell your systems that you have a single huge smoking processor. Well, and that's what we'd suggest in the Zen virtualization world as well, is we tell them, even though in Zen you could also overcommit if I have a single core in my box, I can create a virtual machine with up to 32 cores, but we ran into the same exact problem. So the best practice we always define is never assign more virtual CPUs to a virtual machine than you actually have physical cores in the box. So you don't run into this whole scheduling nightmare of making sure that we divvy up. And so it's the same basic yeah. uh, concept that we have. Our best practice is don't define more virtual CPUs for a single virtual machine than you have real, unless you really want to test something. So if I'm testing some highly parallel application and I want 64 virtual CPUs, I don't care whether it performs rather slow, I can do it. <laughs> the system allows me to do it, but from a performance standpoint, never define more than you have real. And the corollary to that is don't define more than you can actually use. So if the application running is really never going to consume more CPU than one, well, then don't define three, define one. <laughs> well, this brings up another question, because like, I know in the Zen world, we can activate and deactivate virtual CPUs that have been allocated to a virtual machine while it's running. You do the same thing here as well? Yes. Okay. Yeah, in fact, SLUS 11 has the CPU hot plug support in there. And yep. so it also has the functionality to determine load and dynamically vary off CPUs if it detects that the load just doesn't warrant having that many. So that works exactly the same. Okay, good. Okay, so we've defined 
uh, processor. We've defined RAM or storage. We've defined disk. Well, hold on. We've talked about DASD, but what happens if I want to connect to a SAN? So I haven't defined disk yet, but I can do that in the directory. I would define ECKD DASD devices in the directory. If I want to use FCP attached SAN or SAN devices using a fiber channel protocol, I would dedicate to the virtual machine virtual FCP adapters. The VM control program itself won't see that SAN disk at all. It will simply see the FCP adapter. And it will be the Linux operating system that will actually discover and use the logical units that are part of the SAN storage. So I have to really make that determination up front when I'm setting up my virtual machine directory entry. Do I want to use FCP disks or do I want to use ECKD disks? If I want to use ECKD, I define those in the directory. If I want to use FCP SAN disks, I simply give the virtual machine the FCP adapters it needs to talk to the storage area network. And then you just manage your SAN like you would normally. You carve it up in lens and you present the lens in the appropriate zone with lens masking. And then when the virtual machine comes up, it just with its virtual fiber channel card would see the lens that it's been assigned. The host bus adapter device driver on Linux and System Z is not as advanced at this point as some of the other architectures. So it doesn't automatically do discovery. You need to work with your storage area administrator who will tell you, I've given you LUNs 2, 3, 4, and 5. I see. And they're being accessed through a particular adapter or set of adapters on the storage subsystem, and each of those have a worldwide port name. I have to then tell the ZFCP device driver, here's the FCP adapter that I'm going to use. So that's a host device. And... Associated with that, here's the target worldwide port name I'm going to open. And then here's the LUN number at that target worldwide port name that I'm going to access. So the ZFCP driver needs that mapping supplied. And that mapping is supplied in the directory, or is it supplied up in the operating system when you configure in the OS? It's supplied when you're configuring Linux. Okay. And it is possible with the level of the System 390 tools that come with Linux on Z right now to somewhat automate that. So, for example, YAST in SLES 11 allows you to click a button that says get worldwide port names and it goes out and discovers all the worldwide port names you have access to via switch zoning. And so you pick the target worldwide port name that you want to use and then you click another button get LUNs and it goes out again and looks for all the LUNs that you have access to at that target worldwide port name and gives you a drop down list and you select the one that you want to use. And then when you click finish, what YAS does under the covers is build that mapping for the ZFCP device driver and instantiate that in a file in the file system. So the device driver, every time it comes up, will go to that target. I was just going to say that we had that ZFCP YAS module is available for SLUS 10 and SLUS 11. That's right. In SLUS 10, it writes it in Etsy sysconfig hardware. Or in SLUS 11, it writes it into UDEV. Okay, got it. And I would imagine then that YAST is really using some of these underlying tools that you ship as opposed to using their traditional tools that we would use, the different tool set. Correct, because IBM's written the ZFCP device driver, so we're providing a set of tools that can be used by higher-level applications such as YAST to work with that device driver. I think you'll see 
as time progresses that you'll find more automatic discovery of SAN devices in the ZFCP device driver in the future. But it's not there yet. So I've given you one or more DASD devices and I've given you certain sizes in the directory. So let's assume I'm using 3390 mod 9s or something like that. So I've given you four or five six gig disks that you can work with to start. Okay. Now, I've also defined some other interesting devices in your user directory entry. I've defined a 2540 card punch and a 2540 card reader. Now, you'll have to go to the Smithsonian to see that. I know what you're talking about because I colored on them when I was a little kid. There you go. My mom was actually a systems programmer. Herman so. Hollerith. <laughs> so those devices live on as virtual devices in a VM system. Wow. <laughs> when VM, of course, was built <laughs> over 30 years ago, those were real devices on a system that were virtualized by the VM operating system. But now they're sitting there, and there's a very good reason for having those. We'll get to it in just a oh, second. Oh, I'm waiting to hear okay. why you need a virtual punch card. Right? All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I create that directory entry. I put this new entry online, meaning I now have made the control program aware that the directory has changed. There's a new virtual machine. So we're getting ready to install Linux. Now, one of the disks I also gave you is a very small disk. It's probably 50 cylinders in size, so minimal. And I'm going to format that not for use by Linux, but for use by another operating system called CMS, Conversational Monitor System. Okay. That's an operating system that comes with VM. It's built to run in a virtual machine, and it's really the end-user interface to the VM system. So it's a very full-function operating system. You can do a whole lot with it. It's just that you'd have to write programs for the CMS environment if you wanted to do things. So I think of CMS as like DOS. Yeah, yeah. it's like DOS. A lot it's, like DOS. It's actually, over the years, evolved to be a quite powerful multitasking operating system. And in fact, if you go back prior to Linux on the mainframe, there were very large installations that were all CMS-based, 20,000 users and so forth. So not an insignificant operating system, but it has a very specific file system format. So I'm going to format one mini disk to be CMS formatted. So this one mini disk you're talking about is this one of these DASDs or 30, what are they again? 3390. It's, it's just only 50 cylinders in size. So it's a small chunk of a physical 3390 that I have associated with my virtual machine. And only my virtual machine can get to that chunk. Okay. So basically, he's taken a 3390 and carved up a little bit of the 3390, and they call it a mini disk. Right. And they assign the mini disk to that virtual machine. And it appears as its own separate disk. It appears it like a regular 3390. Okay, got it. it has all the architecture attributes of a real 3390. Got it's it. just not as big as the physical one. Okay. So we've talked about a whole bunch of things in the user directory, but one thing we haven't hit on is communications with the outside world. So do I define NICs or LAN cards through there? You define virtual network interface cards. Okay. The virtual network interface card is an exact representation of the real hardware, and on the system, the real hardware is known as an open system adapter. So it's a very sophisticated NIC. <laughs> Much more sophisticated than what you would go down and buy for 100 or $200. So this virtual network interface card is what the low-level device drivers will use to establish an Ethernet connection. Okay. And from that point on, it's a regular ETH0 interface. From the system administrator's point of view, looks like any other Ethernet interface. 
The device drivers underneath are very different from what you'd find on a x86 box. So when you define this virtual NIC, can you define it with different throughputs, like define it as a 10 meg or 100 meg or gig, or is it possible or is it just defined as just a certain speed? It isn't defined as any speed. Okay. Perfect. And its speed is variable <laughs> in the sense that its speed is a function of any real device that it's associated with. So if I have my virtual network interface plugged into a VM virtual switch, which is a layer two or layer three like switch, and that switch is dealing with a real open system adapter on the machine that's a one gig, then my virtual NIC is essentially a one gig. Oh, okay. If it's a 10 gig, my virtual NIC's a 10 gig. If my virtual NIC is talking to a guest LAN, so a LAN media that exists purely on the VM system itself, then I'm talking memory speeds to every other virtual machine, and so my NIC card is whatever the memory speed is which is essentially a function of how fast is your CPU. <laughs> so that's the key that I was trying to get to, is I can define multiple ones of those, and I could keep one of those virtual segments within the box as almost a backplane in between my different servers and different services, and then I can use a different virtual NIC that's going to be more connectivity to the outside world. You don't really have to define two, because oh. my virtual NIC gets typically connected to a VM virtual switch. Okay. And that virtual switch then is connected to a real piece of hardware to a real LAN segment. And the control program is smart enough to know that if a packet is going from one virtual machine through the virtual switch to another virtual machine, well, it never hits any real hardware at all. It's a memory speed transfer from the buffer in the one virtual machine to the buffer in the other. And VM does that very, very quickly with something known as advanced addressing in the system Z. <laughs> I'm excited. I want to turn this thing on and start to load up SLES on it. Is there anything else key that we need to define before we can turn on our box? That's everything you really need to define. Okay, so now we're ready. You somehow... So we got to get Linux running in our virtual machine. And what right. we're going to do is take our DVD that we got from Novell. We're going to go to the slash boot directory and the S390X, I think, subdirectory, and we're gonna find some files there. One is vmrdr.ikr. That is a kernel that's been prepared for IPL from a 2540 card reader. Cool. And we're gonna FTP that up to our CMS disk. We're gonna FTP a PARM file yep. and an initial RAM disk. So we find those three files there, we ship them up, and we FTP them to our CMS disk in our virtual machine. We log on to our virtual machine, now, when we FTP'd the binary pieces there, kernel and RAM disk, we need to make sure that we told the VM FTP server to write them out in fixed 80-byte records. Why? Because of cards, right? So those files are written on disk in fixed 80-byte records. So we're going to log on to our VM system. We're going to tell the control program to take the output of our virtual 2540 punch and route it to our virtual 2540 reader. We do that with a CP spool punch command. And then we're going to use a CMS command because we would have IPL'd the CMS operating system when we logged on. You wouldn't have to, but that's the most convenient to get started. And CMS has a command called punch. And so we're going to take those files from disk, run them through the 2540 card punch, and they'll end up in the 2540 card reader. <laughs> now, the reason we've done this is because the 
System Z architecture only defines a few types of devices as valid targets for an initial program load. And that is DASD devices are valid targets, but we don't have this Linux kernel from Novell on an ECKD disk yet, so that's out. Tape drives are valid, but we'd have to build a tape. That's kind of messy. Card readers are valid. They were in the 60s. They're still valid. So I can do an initial program load of the card reader, and that will read that kernel, PARM file and RAM disk in, turn over control of the kernel. It will explode the RAM disk, and you will have Linux running in your virtual machine with the tools in the RAM disk. And the very first thing it will say is, what do you want to do? And that's what I wanted to get to. Do I get to that normal installation screen that I'm used to with SLES, or is SLES up and running? You get to a script that's going to walk you through connecting up your network interface and determining whether you want to use a GUI installation method or a NCURSES installation method, okay. so the type of screen that you'd get, so an SSH type install. So you have to walk through and answer those questions, and okay. so it will ask you, are you starting a new installation, yes or no? And you say yes. And then it will probe for network devices and it will find this virtual NIC and ask you, do you want to use this? Yes. And you'll go through the steps to configure that, whether it's DHCP or you're going to assign an IP address and so forth. And once then the network interface is up, it will also ask you, where is your installation server? And give you choices for FTP, NFS, HTTP. There's quite a list, so you'd choose maybe NFS or FTP. It asks for the FTP server, goes out, reads in some of the code to populate its in-storage disk, and then you have the choice of doing an X11 install or VNC or SSH. So VNC is the most popular for GUI, and at that point then, once the VNC server is up and you're instructed to connect, you see a GUI YAST install environment cool. that looks identical to any other platform. So it sounds like essentially what you were describing initially was what we would see in the boot in NIDRD, where you, if you go through that manual process, it asks you essentially the same type of questions, and then it basically goes out and finds YAST and launches YAST and goes from there. So yeah, again, very similar. It's almost identical. The only difference being that the mainframe doesn't have a built-in graphics card like you have on a local oh, <laughs> X-type sure. architecture machine. So it has to go further in a line mode to get to the point where you can do some sort of remote X, either X11 or VNC or SSH. But once you've established that connectivity, then the installation is the same as any other platform. And the GUI looks the same. It is the same. <laughs> I mean, it literally is the same. One thing that people have to remember, at least older mainframes didn't even have a DVD drive. Correct. And so that's why you have to have an installation server. And that's why you have to go through the process of configuring a NIC and either setting it to DHCP or giving it an IP address. And then it goes out to the installation source that sits somewhere out on the network and then begins to start the installation. Which could theoretically just be another VM running on the system. Very well exactly. would be if you got the Novell starter system. It is another uh, <laughs> virtual machine running there. There we go. <laughs> and then all my drivers are set up. It's automatically going to discover the proper, because I'm assuming you have your own custom disk driver that we're going to use. Yep. And same thing with the NIC card and everything else like that. Yeah, there are System Z device drivers. It's actually a much simpler environment than normal because you don't have to worry about display drivers and all sorts of various bus architectures and things like that. The System Z has a very well-defined, consistent channel subsystem for all I.O. 
the environment actually is much simpler <laughs> than what you would find in a distributed box where you've got all sorts of pieces of real hardware to contend with. <laughs> and then one of the other things, so you've got SUSE Linux booted up, you've got your connection to the VNC, and one of the first screens that you see, oh, well, the first screen is you accept the uh, user License. agreement. <laughs> right. And then the next screen that you see is about configuring the storage. Correct. Whether you're going to configure the DASI or whether you're going to configure SAN storage or whether you're going to configure iSCSI storage. Right. Cool. Yep. And cool. so once you've configured your disk devices, and really the menus that are the screens you're walking through would be exactly the same if you're doing SAN, it looks the same as any SCSI. If you're doing DASD, well, instead of SDA, you see DASD, but it's still a, a disk with a partition or multiple partitions. You're going through the menus exactly the same as you would any place else. And then after that point, you're just picking packages and Away you go. <laughs> so one last thing. So I've got the system installed, and when I go to boot it again the next time, in the PC distributed world, whatever you want to call it, we would use Grub as the bootloader, but we wouldn't be using Grub in this case because we would be using the same essential boot process that we did to do the install, right? But instead of using the install kernel in NRD, with the terms we would use, it would then be referencing the... There is a bootloader for uh, uh, okay. System Z, so... It's not Grub, but it can provide you with a menu of kernels that you Ooh. can choose from. Yeah. The idea is basically exactly the same. The way you get there is slightly different just because we don't have a BIOS going to a sector. We have an architected IPL process going to a disk location. Right, so the term that you would use is we would IPL this bootloader, right. which would yeah. then in turn boot Linux. Correct. And so, you know, instead of using Grub to write out your master boot record on disk and so forth, there is a system Z tool called ZIPL, which essentially does that. It writes the bootloader code to a special location on the disk that the hardware architecture goes to. What does that mean for boot speed? Well, it's pretty fast. Was that a good haul? It's, it's a good thing. It's like people are amazed when I start up, I IPL the DASD. And I say, I IPL the DASI, I see the menu pop up, and there's a 10-second countdown, and then boom. And it depends on the speed of the machine, but about, 10, about 20, 25 seconds, Linux is up and running. That's awesome. Sounds also how quickly things boot in Zen as well, for a very same reason, because you have such a simple hardware architecture that you're presenting. You can come up quickly. So We're really just grabbing cool. a kernel and loading it up in the memory. And waking it up. Yeah, because there's none yeah. of that real mode protected mode thing that you go through in a traditional x86 boot. It just wakes up in what we would call protected mode. Oh, I'm alive. Okay, here yeah. I am. You know. So now that we've created this box, we've got it up and running, is it easy to clone? Oh, absolutely. It's easy from the ZVM system programming point of view to clone it because we have tools in the ZVM world that allow us to copy DASD devices from one virtual machine to another. If you want to see how easy it is to clone, come into the IT Central, because I have a demo running there where I'm creating a new SUSE SLES 11 Apache server every 10 seconds. And that's where I'm interested is in <laughs> all the back-end stuff. Like, we're cool with Zen, but you got to remember stuff about MAC address of your NIC has to be a new randomized thing. Things like server names. Or are you doing that all via DHCP and stuff like that? No, I'm not using DHCP at all, but cool. I'm assigning IP addresses to the clones as I create them. Oh, cool. And I have a script embedded in each of the clones so that when it comes up, it figures out what its IP address should be from my assignment, and it instantiates that, and away it goes. So it changes its host name to be correct and its IP address. 
It's up on the network every 10 seconds. We create a thousand of them. A thousand of them all running on the same machine simultaneously too, right? Right. <laughs> there we go. And that's the same machine we use to do our class. So we're going to be doing that while a thousand other servers are running. Oh, that is so cool. <laughs> Great. So Richard, thanks a lot for sitting down and talking to us and explaining to us how System Z kind of parallels some of the virtualization stuff that we're used to working on. Ron, Mike, thanks a lot for sitting down and helping with questions. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure to be here. Remember that Novell Open Audio is brought to you by Novell Incorporated. Most of our content is directed by our listener community. So please send us your feedback by email at openaudio at novell.com or by leaving comments on our website at novell.com slash openaudio. That's it for this time. Have a good one. <laughs>